As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. From Capitol Hill to the White House, the Courthouse to the State House, the FTC to the State Attorney General. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business foreign and domestic. And have your questions answered by our group of legal experts. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center. Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center Media Center in Santa Monica, California. And today we are reaching east with another guest from the Miami Book Fair. And uh, our guest today is Philip Mudd. And he is the author of Black Site, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. And he will be speaking at the Miami Book Fair on Sunday, November 24th, along with um, CLBR um, veteran Malcolm Nance and Josh Campbell, the author of Crossfire Hurricane Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI. So, Philip, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Just to clarify, since I'm semi-lazy, I'm not actually speaking. I think I just have to answer questions. So I hope that doesn't require too much advanced preparation because that's not my strong suit. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'll, he's the non-lawyer and he's being precise. All right. That's good to hear. Good to know. <laughs> so um, your book is interesting, and I think you know we, when we were talking offline, there is something some value to kind of talk about um, what the CIA did before 9/11, and the, the whole transition going on in the post Cold War world. And so you joined the CIA in 1985, right? That's right. Yes. 
And um, and that was kind of the peak of the Cold War um, and tear down this wall and all that. But the Cold War ended. And um, how was that for an organization that had been established as kind of the, the bulwark against communism after World War II? I, I mean, there's that's an interesting question. There's a couple pieces of that. I was I was still, you know, it took me a long time to mature relatively, I would say, junior, in some cases, inexperienced officer in the 1990s. But I remember a couple things. One on the macro scale, and it's sort of a leadership question. Who provides direction here when the Soviet Union, what's what's the direction of the CIA? What are the major mission objectives? What What's our reason for being? It's sort of like, you know, VHS in this in the CD world or in the digital <laughs> digital world. What do you what, what where do you head from here? Um, as someone said, you know, the dry, the dragon is slayed. All we have is snakes left. What, and that was the sense at the CIA that that uh, the major mission, the decline of the Soviet Union, that the communist threat was declining. And the other thing was more mundane, but really important in Washington, that is the decline of, of dollars and personnel. All understandable. We talked about the peace dividend in the 1990s, but the, the right. CIA really, along with the rest of the national security community, felt the loss of a lot of money in the 90s. And but what what changed the focus to counterterrorism? Is there some one event uh, well, in particular that focused attention? I mean, the 80s sure you had the baby. Yes. Actually, I think it's today. It's the anniversary of the Beirut bombing. Um, but. You, well, Yes, it's interesting. You know, it's easy to say 9-11, which is my knee-jerk response. There's a couple other pieces that happened. First, you know, inside the CIA, that one of the more horrific things in, in my memory there is hearing the stories of, of the death of the former chief of station at Beirut, William Buckley, who died yes. in the 1980s after being kidnapped by his boy. He was tortured to death. And, and you know, obviously, with the bombings in Beirut uh, of the embassy and the Marine barracks, stuff that people have forgotten, you know, his boy was important. But I think also important for the CIA was the, the uh, emergence at the agency from deputy director to director of George Tenet in the 90s. Again, the peace dividend years, but he was really focused on counterterrorism. You'll recollect he had the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, right. and he energized the agency with an infusion of leadership. And also he tried to pay attention to things like budget training, boring stuff, but stuff that's really important in a bureaucracy. And so you, you are in this agency that's evolving. Can you explain, what's the difference between the CIA and the NSA? Uh, CIA does a couple things different than the NSA. Let me start with NSA, the National Security Agency. They do what I call technical intercepts. That is penetrating things like, it used to be phones overseas, and then it got right. to be into things like email and also foreign computers. They do technical intrusions and intercepted communications. The CIA does more human source stuff overseas that is recruiting foreign agents, but also working with foreign security services. In some ways, this is kind of interesting. It's not talked about a lot. They do what's called, uh, they, they uh, help NSA with access. That is finding a house, for example, that might be over a phone line. So NSA can intercept that phone line. The other thing they do that's different than NSA is back at headquarters, which is where I was, they don't only analyze intercepted communications. They look at everything, foreign media, human source information, technical information. It's called all source intelligence, which is what I did, looking at everything around the world to understand the world. And um, and that's why, for example, you, your background was, was in literature right? before you went into this. And they bring in people with, you know, um, kind of liberal arts backgrounds being, and partly because of that. 
I, I suppose, but let's not off be too polite here. I, I got a job in the Reagan era because I think they just needed people who could write. I don't think I would be hired today. And when I started, <laughs> when I started interviewing people uh, about 20 years ago, if I had seen my resume, I don't, by the, the screeners wouldn't have let my resume through. I, but if somebody had approached me at a job fair, I would have said, you need to go be a barista first or something. You can't have a job here. Uh, I'm not being facetious. I mean, an MA in English literature at the age of 23 with no experience, no foreign language skills in 2000 or 2019, that person's not going to get hired at the CIA, I don't think. Uh, I, I used to be in D.C. and I remember around that time going to a comedy club and there was a, a comedian said he had, he, um, had a master's in philosophy and his life was going fine until GM downsized its philosophy department. But <laughs> Well, my story is even worse. I applied to about 35. My mother was a teacher, 35 or 40 high schools, because I was inspired to try to teach teenagers to read. And I got written rejection in the pre-internet days by every single high school. They chose to write back and say, no, thanks. So we're not interested. So as I'm fond of saying, when you can't get a real job, apply with the federal government. And they'll give you a job, which is what happened to me. So you you were in the federal government, and uh, it's the, the 90s slowly um, transitioned to the, the new millennial. Uh, the bridge to the 21st century, as a certain president likes to say, and um, and then you, you you yourself transitioned to the National Security Council. That's right. I, there's a long tradition across the U.S. government, State Department, Defense Department, CIA, of loaning people to the White House, both because the White House wants experience to advise the president from across government. Uh, but also because the agencies like the CIA encourage, in some cases, force their people to have what we used to call out-of-body experiences, get out of our bureaucracy and learn about another one. So in the, I must have, I'm forgetting now, but maybe eight, seven, eight months before 9-11, I was working on issues related to things like Iran and Libya at the National Security Council, which is kind of the foreign policy arm of, uh, of the White House, down at, down at the, in the White House complex. And so... Obviously, this is maybe per personal, but where where were you on 9-11 and what was that day like? Well, in the first part of the day, like like a good bureaucrat, I was at a coffee shop outside. We were at the executive office building of the National Security Council, okay. which looks like a wedding cake next to the West Wing, which is where the Oval <laughs> Office is, where the Situation Room is. So I came back after the first or sort of at the time of the first plane hitting and someone said, you ought to turn on TV and see. A plane just hit a building. I thought it must be sort of a Cessna trainer. What a tragedy. Somebody right. was learning to fly. And they took a, and then the second plane hit. And you knew instantly that that can't be a coincidence. Someone, my recollection is someone came down the, the very wide marble halls. It's a beautiful building at the, at the uh, executive office building and said, the next plane might be coming for us. I, 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 in retrospect, think they were referring to the Shanksville plane, which I think was heading for Congress, but we didn't know that. So I left without getting my wallet keys. I just remember thinking, if I lose my life because I wanted to find some car keys, that's the dumbest thing I'll ever do. So we went out into the streets of downtown Washington outside the White House, and man, it was chaos. You couldn't have scripted this. And there were people everywhere, days, trying to find a TV to see what was going on. A lot of misinformation. We thought that we had heard there was something that happened at the State Department, which was untrue. Uh, it was just chaos. I didn't go back to the White House that way. I, that day, I went across the river and saw the smoke billowing out of the Pentagon and went with a friend and just spent the day just sort of in a daze watching what happened. And did you know anyone who was lost? 
I did not. I, I do. I mean, th- this is pretty mundane compared to the people who did suffer loss. But uh, my brother was working in lower Manhattan. Uh, he was a prosecutor. And, um, we, you know, obviously we didn't know what was going on in lower Manhattan. I remember right. it was hours till the afternoon where I could hear from him because the cell phone lines were and the landlines were clogged. Uh, but I think I was using a cell to get him. You sit there and say, I wonder if he was anywhere near there. Um, but then later I met some of the families of people who lost, including a, a mother who still had the voice recording of her son saying, don't worry, I'll be home. And he never came home. And man, my right. story pales. It was unbelievable. So um, I use that as a transition to this book, Black Sight, the CIA and the post 9-11 world. And in the opening, you make clear why you wrote it, um, which is that it's not attempted to um, change anyone's mind who's already made up their mind, but to instead allow readers to step back in time and to experience the world as CIA officers knew it. Um, From both sides of the interrogation debate, the goal is the same, walk away realizing that the decisions behind the program were not easy and that oversimplifying the database into the debate into black and white obscures what was and still is a morally difficult problem. So um, you are basically walking into America's second Pearl Harbor. Yes, I don't remember thinking about it like that. I remember thinking this is going to change the world. It took a few days, as you'll recall, for it for the the world to understand who had done this. Although the CIA right. knew pretty quickly based on looking at passenger manifests. You know, the 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 adversary in contrast to the Axis powers of World War II was fuzzy. You didn't know how the war would unfold. I certainly wouldn't have anticipated how long and global the war was, how entrenched Al-Qaeda was, um, how entrenched the ideology was, and obviously the fact that this would lead to the to the war in Iraq. But I do remember thinking the, the war is going to change. I also remember calling over to the CIA at some point since I was on detail at the White House and saying, if you have something to do, I, I, I want to participate in this. This is sort of like, this is going to be the up. war of my generation. I, yeah. I'm ready to get so uh, I was, I did join up with the, the diplomatic team that went to Afghanistan under a, a U.S. ambassador to try to begin rebuilding Afghanistan in about October, November of 2001. And then you got assigned to the, the counterterrorism task force. Yes, I had been in the counterterrorism program since it must have been about 91 or 92. So kind of in the days where, believe it or not, counterterrorism was regarded as a backwater. I had taken a year off and grew my hair out. I had shoulder-length hair in 1992. And when I came back <laughs> to the CIA after taking a year off, they said, we owe what's termed in, in the CIA, I assume also, a, we owe a body to counterterrorism. Mud has sort of went off, off the deep end on us. He needs a haircut. Send him over there. <laughs> so by happenstance, in a way, I ended up in counterterrorism. And, and that's where I returned in, in uh, January of 2002 to become second in charge of analysis and then second in charge of counterterrorism uh, in, 19, in uh, 2003. So the, the book covers black sites and, and, and rendition. Um, but what's interesting, they were, that was not new. You know, this isn't, we didn't just start black sites after 9-11. But can you explain what, what is a black site and, and what is rendition? Well, renditions weren't new. Black sites were, renditions were the, the 
when you capture a terrorist in a foreign location, and, and the terrorist is a foreigner, that is, you capture them in, 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 in a Asian country, and they happen to be Middle Eastern, the Asian country is going to say, we can't keep this person. Right. The Americans might say, we don't have a case against this person. So you sit there and say, well, what if somebody, what if the, the person's home country and, you know, Jordan or Egypt or, or somewhere has a case? Um, should we fly this person back to their home country? Now, some people said you did that purposely so they could abuse when they got, be abused when they got home. That's one of the class you mentioned earlier. This is a tough book to write. You know, I would try to put people in, in that seat. What would you do? Would you let them go? Right. Would you try to take them back to New York when you don't have a case and ask the U.S. attorney to prosecute? You don't have a case. You don't have evidence, but some other government does. Anyway, so that was rendition. And, but that, and that, that predates 9-11. That goes, that goes back to, to Clinton. Okay. Uh, there or Papa Bush, I think you said. Or um, I don't remember if there were rendition. There might have been. I don't remember. I, I, I remember Clinton. I don't okay. remember. Uh, I assume they occurred under under Papa Bush after after uh, um, after Reagan. But I, I don't remember. Anyway, after nine eleven, the spring of two thousand two, when the first Al Qaeda prisoner was captured, the CIA said, "What do we do with this guy? Right. We don't have any place to send him, but also we want to interrogate him." So they said. She has a very agile organization, not always the most well-planned, but very agile, said, heck, we'll create our own detention facilities. They had never done this before, and we're going to do it now. So that, that was the first black site when the first prisoner was captured in the spring of 2002. And in the book, you, you described the process, and wasn't one of the ideas to put them on an island with a moat or something? <laughs> People, I mean... One of the the, the 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 book is partly about understanding black sites and interrogations, but a lot of it. One of the reasons I wrote it is I said, you know, my friends, my colleagues are never going to speak. Right. The the, the from multiple future generations won't understand what it was like. So I put in examples yeah. like people talking about what kind of facilities might be created as a way to give a sense to the reader. This was like totally uncharted territory. Somebody said, put them on a ship, as you said. Somebody said there might be an African place, like an island with alligators around. I'm like, really? <laughs> and then somebody finally said, well, we're going to look for friendly countries that might be able to keep a secret and would be willing to give us a facility where they don't have access. We didn't want foreigners in the facilities for a number of reasons. But um, right. yeah, that's that's how it started. And um, and so you you capture your first um, your first you know, Al-Qaeda member. Um, what happens then? That was a fellow named Abu Zubaid. I, re I remember the night he was captured. We were trying to, you know, we, there's a process where you we put together articles every night for the president to read in the morning. It's called the President's Daily Brief. We were preparing the President's Daily Brief on the capture of Abu Zubaid. And I remember sitting with the analyst that night, the night he was captured, saying, can we understand exactly what this means? And I don't think we could capture that well because my point is we didn't really understand al-Qaeda that well. Even in the spring of 2002, our intelligence picture wasn't that good. So in the midst of that, you capture a senior, what we call facilitator, someone who helped with things like training of al-Qaeda members, a guy named Abu Zubayda, captured in Pakistan. And uh, he has to recover first. He, there are some grievous wounds he suffered during the shootout of his capture. After he started recovering, he spoke. And then he shut down in the view of the CIA officers I spoke with. And they sat around saying, the leadership of the CIA saying, if he has some of the secrets to an organization we don't understand, and the next 9-11 might be around the corner, what do we do? What do we do? So they said, we're going to reverse engineer some of the 
interrogation techniques we use with U.S. soldiers to prepare them in the event they're captured. And we're going to uh, we're going to get that approved by the Department of Justice and we're going to interrogate them ourselves. Happened very quickly over the course of weeks or months. And then Department of Justice in August of 2002 said, here's your legal authorization. Go ahead. And just to, for clarity, the, the, the legal authorization came from a memo done by the Office of Legal Counsel, kind of the, the official um, opinion body of the Department of Justice. Yes. And it was written by two people, John Yu and um, in his first name, Bybee, who's now a federal judge. But Yu yeah. has been very controversial um, for his, what some people believe, redefinition of what constituted torture. No, I think that's true. I mean, at, at that, people focus on the personalities, which which I understand. But when you're engaging in something that sensitive and that controversial as a C, then the CIA knew in the, in mid 2002 this would be controversial when it broke. Nobody thought it would be secret forever. There's a couple of things you have to think about. One, just in terms of understanding the U.S. government, there is one element of the U.S. government that determines how to interpret the law. That's the Office of Legal Counsel. It wasn't right. because John Yu was there. It's because that's where you go to say what's the law and what can we do under the law and the second more mundane point of going to department of justice distant second is if you're going to engage in something like this you want what we call paper i don't want to not i don't want a yes at a meeting i want a black and white piece of paper that says we looked at the constitution and federal law here's what it says here's why what you're doing is okay and here's what you can't do that's what we got in uh, there were a couple documents actually in the august of 2002 yeah, there were there were a couple of memos, yes, and yeah. um, so, and and let me go back to nine eleven. There's the famous interview on Meet the Press with um, Dick Cheney, where he says something about we're going to have to operate in the shadows. And do you have any sense of what that meant? And what, was this kind of the outgrowth of, you know, Dick Cheney's view that of operating in the shadows? Well, I, I don't particularly care for that phraseology. I mean, I suppose as a rule, even before 9-11, during the, the, the sort of ideological battle against the Soviets, operating the shadows would mean you're recruiting people to operate secretly. But it, it almost smells like you're saying we're going to operate in, in gray areas. Our, the, the view that I witnessed and that I wrote about was, yes, this is controversial. America is in a different place than they were on September 10th. And by that, I include not only the White House, but also Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Uh, the American people and polling data supports this. We're in a fundamentally different place about how they expect us to fight terror. We're going to move fast with no regrets. Um, but we are, for everything controversial we do, going to the Department of Justice to deter, to have them determine what the law is and write it down. So if, if in the shadows, suggest, and a lot of American people think the CIA is sort of outside the law, suggests that the CIA was fuzzy on the law, I, I don't buy that. People don't have to like what we did, but fuzzy on the law, you don't go to the Department of Justice and ask for memos over the course of a couple of years if you want to evade the law. We asked them right. what the law was, and they told and one other point I want to bring out, and then you've emphasized this in a number of interviews, is that 9-11 um, wasn't seen as a one-off. There was an expectation that another strike was coming. Was, was there? For years. We called it the second wave 
uh, we anticipated, I say we, the, the book is written in third person because I didn't want to confuse the reader, but I witnessed a lot of this stuff and, and participated, for example, in briefings of the CIA director and occasionally the president on the threat picture, uh, what we call threat streams, the variety of threat information coming into the CIA. The, the Al-Qaeda guys were trying to recruit a second wave of uh, suicide bombers and in some cases did some successful recruitment of the um, Thankfully, it didn't happen in the United States. You'll recollect there were suicide bombers in the UK. You remember in mid-2005 when the, there's a major subway bombing. Right. But for years, we anticipated a second wave. The other concern, which is forgotten, was the concern that that second wave might include WMD. Not, not Saddam-style WMD, but Al-Qaeda was um, experimenting in Afghanistan with anthrax. And we weren't sure how far they had gotten and whether anybody outside of Afghanistan had either gotten uh, strains or continued to work. So that, that concern stayed with us for years. And um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more with Philip Mudd, Black Sight, the CIA, and the post-9-11 world. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Miami may be the sun and fun capital of the world, but it's also home to the largest literary festival in the U.S. Don't miss the Miami Book Fair, a week-long festival featuring more than 600 authors from all over the world with readings, signings, and panels capped off by a three-day street fair. Find books in English, Spanish, and Creole for every interest and every age, from biographies and novels to poetry and comics. This year, come meet poets Richard Blanco, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and Joy Harjo, award-winning novelists T.C. Boyle, Susan Choi, Edwidge Dentica, Taya Obrecht, Julie Orancher, Leonard Pitts, and Karen Russell, plus authors exploring issues of the day such as Eve Ensler, Alex Kotlowitz, Danny Shapiro, Daryl Pickney, Ambassador Samantha Power. 
George Wilt, and hundreds more. Take the little ones to Children's Alley for hands-on activities, characters, and storytelling. Enjoy music, food, and fun for the whole family right on the downtown Miami-Dade College campus, November 17th to the 24th. For details, schedules, and tickets, visit MiamiBookFair.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly, and we're talking with Philip Mudd, the author of Black Site, the CIA in the post-9-11 world. And we were just talking about the, the expectation that um, 9-11 was not going to be an isolated incident and that there was a second wave coming that could have a, a WMD component. And, and that created a sense of urgency, I imagine. It, it did. Uh, there's a phrase that uh, the former CIA director and also NSA director, Michael, General Michael Hayden, used that sort of sticks with me. And I, and I did interview him for the book. And he said, you know, the American people might forgive us for missing the first one. They will never forgive us for missing the second one. So when we were doing the nightly, and we did the nightly threat briefings for Director Tennant at 5 p.m., when we were doing the nightly briefings for years tenant would always say you know if there if the next big one happens and you come back saying we should have done x y and z my question for you is going to be why don't you do that today why would you wait so there there was a sense of urgency i mean i thought we were losing against al-qaeda till roughly oh four or oh five i thought they had the upper hand and then again in, in mid uh oh five on on 7 july 2005 there was a major attack in the UK that led you led me to say, man, there are some of the best on the planet, the UK, and they missed one. What if that happens here? Why wouldn't we rule that out? Or why would we rule that out? Pardon? Why did you think Al-Qaeda had the edge you know, up until 2004, 2005? Was it because you know, they evaded um, the attack at Tora Bora or was it other things? No, more broadly, um, when I was looking at the data coming in, there are a number of characteristics that I looked at. Number one, and most simply, the blue team, that is the United States versus the red team, that is Al-Qaeda. The blue team didn't have a good understanding of the adversary. We didn't know their hierarchy that well. We didn't have the global coalition of security partners that that, that, that helped us so tremendously after 9-11. But if you look at Al-Qaeda, the, uh, the breadth and depth of ideology, the ideological penetration in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia was pretty remarkable. The number of cells overseas were pretty remarkable. The growing sophistication of communication among the cells, that is their ability to evade our surveillance, the lack of capability early on of some of our partners around the world, all those characteristics combined to me to say, man, if they have an ideology, if they have a commitment, if they have enough personnel, if they start learning to, to, to be more secretive in their communications, if our partners aren't that great, where do we have an advantage? And over time, we had the advantage in partners and technology and our own huge capabilities. And I think in the decline of their ideology, their ideology started to slip. People said across the Middle East and elsewhere, we may not like the Americans, but these guys are nasty. And, and that was so basically Al-Qaeda was turning off their potential base. Yes. I mean, the, the you know, common comment on that is Al-Qaeda was killing more Muslims than than they were Westerners. But the arrogance of the organization was really, was really, and the same holds true, I think, for ISIS, was one of their undoings. They were so committed towards saying, 
God has given us the luxury of being right, and these people just don't understand it, that they they lost sight, I think, of the importance of recruiting uh, not only followers but also fundraisers and just said, we're right. Uh, well, you know, you remember what, what ISIS did in captured territories, including, you know, beheading people, you know, it was, uh, awful. Uh, yeah. it was awful. And it's very, it's hard to persuade somebody that you represent a force for good when you kill them and they don't agree. And these guys, the, their ideology, ideology got in the way. And, and not only that, but you also incentivize people like what happened in Rafa, um, people which was citizen journalists decided to expose ISIS. You know, people who had well, not been the, the, the voice of journalism before now felt we have to tell the world about this awful new thing. Well, and, and for us, one of the most important pieces that it's hard to tell is threat is a great motivator for a security service. It wasn't just countries and places like Southeast Asia and the Middle East who are saying, let's be polite to the Americans, let's give them a hand. These countries, their people, but also their leadership you know, places like Saudi Arabia, where the head of the security service was the, the near victim of a suicide bomber, they start to say, well, we're with the Americans, not only because we're with them, but because we, too, are subject to these kinds of attacks. Right. And we can't look at what happened in places like, like uh, you know, in places like Saudi Arabia or Jordan, uh, in places like North Africa, and the security services start to say, uh, this is not happening here. Right. And that was really helpful. So... We have the black sites, and we, we start the interrogation. You know, walk us through um, the enhanced interrogation techniques and and how they applied and how effective they were. Oof, that's a lot of questions. Let's break this down. Okay, um, you can have a hundred plus people go through CI black sites. One of the considerations for who goes through a black site is how significant they are in Al Qaeda. So you're talking about the less than 1% of the people by far who were captured went through those facilities, not only because you only want to talk to the people who know something big, but also, and this is, this is hard to understand. You can't successfully go through an interrogation process like that unless you know the background of the person well enough. So that at the start of interrogation, you can determine when they're lying. So for example, a question like, can you just write down on this piece of paper, John Doe, the terrorist, where you've been the past three years? That terrorist starts to realize, what if I don't know if they know the answer to that or not. Right. And when I, when I lie and they catch me, sleep deprivation, uh, what's called walling, putting some, pushing someone against a flexible wall, an open face slap, the well-known technique called waterboarding, although that was only three individuals among 100 plus, so that was very rare. But sleep deprivation in particular tires people out and wears out their will to resist. I'm not, I'm not arguing that this is right or wrong. People can come to their own views morally and in terms of American values. I'm just saying that, that the terrorists start to realize I better say something because these guys keep catching me in lies. <laughs> Explain how sleep deprivation works. It involves what, bright lights and noise? Lights, noise, you're, you're going to ensure uh, that the, the person can't go to sleep. You're going to shake them awake when they might go to sleep, but also it doesn't necessarily mean they're awake all the time. You might just say you had a good night's sleep and they had two hours. They don't know because there's no clock. There's right. no light and dark. They can't talk to anybody. So they start to say things like, I'm going to give them a fragment. So interrogator might say, talk about the people who went, Westerners, who went through your training facility. 
And a terrorist might say, I'm going to give you the fragment of a name that's true. They don't realize how valuable that was to us because we're matching that at the agency up against intercepted communications, against what other detainees say, against what other security services have found when they raided al-Qaeda safe houses. So if they say, you know, there was a guy from, you know, Germany or the UK or France or Canada named, uh, uh, named uh, John Smith, who I remember meeting two years ago, all of a sudden you're like, wow, okay. And they, they were so tired, they thought that was a throwaway, or they might. But over time, they never broke. People in the public use that. We did not use that word. They became compliant with requests for information. Sure. Once they became providing com- stuff they, uh, what's that? Once they became compliant, they were no longer subject to those techniques, or were they? Correct. No, unless they slip. But typically, when someone when when someone reaches the level where they want to talk, as one of them said, "I was given the will to resist by God." I'm, I'm paraphrasing. God understands that I can't resist anymore, so it's okay with him for me to talk. That was their philosophy. You, sh- you should have just told them that from the start. <laughs> well, one of them said you should do this to the other prisoners because that will give them the reason for being compliant um, when they feel that God is telling them to resist. He told us that we should use enhanced interrogation techniques against other people we captured. It was very curious. Interesting. Now, um, so one of the criticisms, and obviously there's a lot of criticism about some of these techniques, especially waterboarding, is you know is the torture element. But there's also an- another element is that it, it doesn't work. And I don't, you know, obviously we're talking about several different techniques. But what do you say to that charge? That um, enhanced interrogation just gets you mostly um, misinformation. Yeah, I, I don't. I could, I could see that if you were uh, interrogating someone when you couldn't for the first stage of the interrogation when you couldn't discern fact from fiction. If right. you bring in a third-rate courier, you don't know anything about him, and you say, "Where have you traveled in the past three years?" and he says, "I've been to." you know, Timbuktu and, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Right. I don't know if that's true. This only works if you have enough information. So in the initial stages, the one that the terrorist is under duress, they start to say, damn, I, I skipped Timbuktu and they seem to know it. What else do they know? And then they say, can you tell me everybody in the hierarchy of your section of Al-Qaeda? What if I start skipping people and life becomes difficult again? I, I'm sleep deprived again. So uh, what I tell folks is first, there's two different questions. One is, is this effective? And two is, is it appropriate? Keep those questions separate. On the effectiveness, of course, people lie. They also lie when they're not under duress. The real question is, do you know enough about them to capture and lie? So they start saying, this is a hall of mirrors. I better start speaking. Except, again, let me use that word compliant. For example, on information about bin Laden, they're not going to talk about that. Uh, you, you can't interrogate them. So uh, the interrogators understood that there are limits to what a terrorist would say. It's not like they 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 broke and said, "I'll tell you anything you want to know." But and also, was there an element of them being proud of what they had done and, and happy to tell you that? Well, there's two pieces. They were proud of that that they had uh, attacked. They, they we were in their eyes the head of the snake. The snake right. included the UK, the Israelis, etc. They attacked successfully the head of the snake. It's not only what they viewed as a success of 9-11, it's a clarion call to recruits 
around the world. It's an ideological message. It says we can go toe to toe with the Americans. Right. Um, so they were proud to talk to us about what they did. They were never, I don't remember any of them saying, you know, I, 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 maybe it happened, but saying, I'm really, I really feel regret. They would talk to us about ideology, about how they thought. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of 9-11, used to give classes to the interrogation teams. He would sit in front of a whiteboard and talk about and lecture. He was a sort of an arrogant dude, but very bright, <laughs> brilliant. Inside. That said, that's a different question than whether that meant they wanted to reveal information about the organization. Right. You know, they don't want to give up their friends. So that's where the resistance comes about. It's not about they're resisting because they're so proud of what they did. It's we wanted details about who was John Doe. When did he pass through your training camp? What kind of passport did he have? What kind of training did you give him? Who else was on his team? You know, just every single bit of information they had was valuable to us. So what is the hierarchy or the escalation of the enhancements? You, you, you try to go from least to most intrusive. And uh, I mean, that is, you, somebody comes into a facility, some people are going to be scared. Some people will talk almost immediately because they've heard that, you know, you're going to string them up, um, which is not true, but they don't know what to think. And, um, um, so yeah. it, this is really based on individual psychology and going from things like very limited uh, uh, techniques, such as sleep deprivation, to the most aggressive, which, as you're suggesting, is waterboarding. It's, I, it, it's individualized. So the team is sitting down, the interrogation team is sitting down. What does this person know? How compliant are they now? How nervous are they? What are they responding to in terms of techniques? What did we do yesterday? What should we do tomorrow? It was really, um, it wasn't a cookie cutter operation. And that's one reason there are so few people who go through the facilities. This is very labor intensive. You have to develop a plan for, for every day for every interrogation of every prisoner. And and so let's, let's talk about waterboarding. So it was only done for three of the highly, um, I guess, yes. prized or in re resistant um, subjects. And, um, but how often was it done? The, that depends. <laughs> there's, there's a piece in the book in this. That depends on how you define often. And there's a dispute about this. For example, you have to put someone on a board and simulate a drowning. Yeah. It is a very difficult process that was difficult you know, the, 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 the detainees hated it, obviously. So one question would be, every time you put somebody on a board, that's a waterboarding. One of the things uh, the interrogators objected to in the studies of this and the critiques that came afterwards were people were saying, when you put them on the board for X number of minutes and you pour water on them, you know, whatever, X number of times, every time you pour water on them is a waterboarding incident. And the interrogators... Okay acknowledge what they did but they said that that's a that's a little bit that, that that is a misreading of what waterboarding is it sounds like some people were on the board you know 150 times or more and that's not right. quite true i'm not i'm what, not i'm not suggesting this wasn't what, what, what is what is the high numbers. end of how often how, how many times that, that they were um they were put through that drill for it for the actual pours you're talking about a uh, hundred plus. I mean, you know, but in terms is, of, yeah, because you're making a distinction. Yes. There's the criticism of you know, the, the hundred plus instances. And you're saying, well, that's an inflated number because that's really just yeah, one I, session. No, it wouldn't be one. That was over multiple sessions. Okay. What I'm saying is 
this distinction between putting someone in the room for 10 minutes on a board, which I would say is an incident of waterboarding and say, okay, we poured water. I don't, I didn't get into this detail with the, with the uh, interrogators. We poured water on, you know, eight times during that. So that's eight waterboarding. I mean, this is, this is technical, but you know, it's one of the interesting things about doing the interviews that the interrogators were very clear on this. And I, people are trying to say that we did this to people hundreds of times. And that's a little misleading. Again, not to suggest it wasn't brutal. That's the one area where some of the CIA officers I spoke with said that might have gone over the line among all the interrogation techniques. And, and was it effective? Yes. But when the, as the program evolved, uh, the interrogators started to say, this is one reason so few people withstood it. It was, it was viewed as very aggressive, and it, the interrogators didn't like doing it, but things like sleep deprivation turned out to be more effective. People, when their endurance starts to break down because they're tired, are going to throw out information that they think, I mentioned this before, that they could think is chaff because they start saying, I need to sleep. So I'm going to give them something I think is, is tr it's true, but I think is useless. And for us, it wasn't. And then you start to ask more aggressive questions. Talk to us more about that training camp. Tell us about more people who were there. Tell us about uh, the email addresses for other people that you were emailing. And man, that stuff, that's not Bin Laden stuff. So somebody might say it's okay to talk about that now, but boy, for us, that's intelligence gold. And so there comes a point and just to be clear, the, uh, there's the Abu Ghraib scandal, but that's, that actually wasn't you guys. That's the Pentagon. That's just a, that's the military. And it's yeah, a, that's a yeah, prison I mean, that's cell in, in Iraq. Yeah. But then it, yeah. it creates uh, um, bad publicity and, and a focus on some of the um, enhanced techniques going on. And then later in, um, you have a change of administration. Um, Al Qaeda has, has had setbacks and then you have the Senate intelligence committee report that delves into um, the, the use of these techniques and yeah. it's quite, you know, con it condemns um, particularly yeah. the waterboarding. And yeah. we, what's your assessment of the, the Senate report? I, I, well, first, I mean, they didn't talk to any of us. They, they also didn't interview, they talk about how this was approved. They didn't interview people that at the White House or the oversight committees who we spoke with and they didn't issue recommendations, including for their own committees. I, I found it, I mean, the 9-11 report was a blueprint for how you write a tough report that criticizes the U.S. government. The CIA and FBI took a beating in that report, but it interviewed us. It also interviewed members of the committee to say, what did you know when? And it offered recommendations. I, I thought the, re the report was too simplistic. Uh, first, it looked at cases. That is, did prisoner XYZ give you uh, threat information that allowed you to stop a plot. I'm like, that's not how this game, that's not how this worked. A prisoner might say, I met John. Well, he, that doesn't stop a plot. I mean, like, you met John. That's interesting. Why is John in Pakistan in that at that time? Wh where is John now? Do we know this guy? How do we find him? The, the intel business was about picking up tiny slivers of data and putting them together. It wasn't about assuming a terrorist would come in and say, here's the next plot in New York. Uh, the, the, la the other thing I'd say is this is a partisan report. There are three reports that came out. Uh, uh, the majority report, which included, if I remember, one Republican, the minority report, which was basically the Republican report, and the CIA response. The American people, I think, deserve everybody to come together again, like they did in a 9-11 report, and say, and also including 
questioners who were nonpartisan. This was done largely by by Democratic staffers to say this is what the American people should know. And it reflects the consensus of Republicans, Democrats, and also what the interviewees at the CIA said. None of that was in the Senate report. And in writing this book, you know, I, I have this, this sense, and I don't know if it's true or not, but that we've had a sufficient amount of time has passed. And this is a story that needs to be told from the viewpoint of the people who were involved. And we can assess it right or wrong, but this is how they were they were how they were approaching it. And that but also that this was now was a cooling off period that we could now talk about this in a different way. And then just as you release the book, there's now a movie coming out about the Senate report and John Hughes back in the headlines this time about impeachment, but everyone's bringing <laughs> yeah. up the, the impeach, you know, the, the torture memos. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like, I don't know if that was really your expectation, but it seems like um, unknow, unknowingly the, um, you know, the flame got turned up again. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that when I was writing the book and, you know, the editorial process, just to go behind the scenes, took quite a while with, with my publishers who were terrific. But to, to your point about writing the book, you know, one of the ugly pieces of this is when I speak, people have views that are not colored by facts. And I'm not just talking about people who support it. There are people who support us saying we couldn't have won the war without this and we're badasses. This is what we do. I don't agree with that. I'm not sure that's true. And that's not how you think about in a kind of operation like this. You don't go in chest thumping saying, this is what we do to bad guys. You go in saying, I'm not sure we have an option here. This isn't a great option. We got Delta hand of deuces, so we're going to try to win. And then on the other side, you have people saying, this is immoral. It's against American values. And by the way, people lie. So why would you do it anyway? Right. That's an oversimplification. Of course they lie. And we talked about this earlier, but I thought both sides we're starting to lose a sense of what actually happened and why. The book is painful. I hope America never goes through this again. It's also a cautionary tale. People who think we should go through it again ought to read the book. We should not. So you have, um, and, and this isn't one of those uh, parach you know, parachute jokes, but you're, you have, you're in a room and you have Donald Trump and John McCain. And Donald Trump is saying, you know, we need to waterboard more. And John McCain saying, that's not who we are. Uh, what do you yes. say to each of them? Well, I think McCain is easier to handle than, than the president. I don't think the president knew what he was talking about. Um, Which is a general in particular, assumption. Well, <laughs> well, in particular, I, I suspect he thought that people in government would say, yeah, that's a great idea. My colleagues would say, first, the threat picture is fundamentally different. But even if it weren't, the American people through the Congress has vilified us for this including the Senate report you referred to, how would a leader say to their workforce, I can't protect you in the future, but why don't you risk your careers and risk vilification by the American people? But I think leaders at the CIA would say, thank you, Mr. President, we're not doing this. Right. The McCain piece, in the, in one of the, he, he was the, I think the only, early on, the only member of Congress who was not in the intelligence oversight committees who was briefed because of his, obviously, experience in Vietnam. I think... His perspective was valid, but what I try to say in the book is that's not where America was in 2002 and 2003, and people don't like to hear that. They say it was you guys, and they don't want to look in the mirror and say more than half of America said this is us. And 
But I think there was also, because I actually wrote about this at that time, but the, on the Bush administration side, there was also a politicization of it because by making them make the argument against enhanced interrogation, it allowed the Bush administration to position, position themselves as tough and their opponents as weak. And it's a very simple position to take. And then the, you know, you can, it's a one sentence thing. Whereas the other side, you know, nuance is never one sentence. It's never a bumper sticker. And having to explain why this isn't who we are is, is always going to get lost in the headline of, you know, Bush says, you know, Democrats or people, you know, anti-torture people are weak. And, um, and so I, you know, they kind of weaponized it as well. Yeah, I, I don't think either side is right. I mean, I, I objected to uh, people on, on the left side of the spectrum saying you guys are evil and I objected people on the right oversimplifying and saying, you know, we're, we're badasses. This is what we do. My message would be we didn't have we had a different perspective on the on the threat and the adversary in 2002. And the American people asked different things of government. They've had a chance to reflect, especially since the threat is fundamentally different. And in reflection, they've said, we might understand what you did, but we think America shouldn't do that again. I think that's fair. But the people who sit around and either say, let's be badasses or say, you guys were a bunch of, of uh, Neanderthals. I think they're both oversimplified and I reject both of them. And my father was in World War II. And you know, I remember watching something on the, the detention camps. And to a modern day American, that those are horrid things. And for someone who lived through Pearl Harbor and fought, and you know, in, you know, as a bomber in World War in Germany, um, he just saw that as a precautionary measure during war, and wasn't so troubled by it. And this is a lawyer, and um, you know, I guess being, and I'm, I, I, I still disagree with him. But you know, he was in that moment, kind of like what you're saying. You're in that moment. And it, it's hard to, it's easy to make the decision now. But um, I guess going back to Pearl Harbor again, because I brought it up earlier, it, it wasn't that a lesson that you know, there, there, were, there were some limits that, of where we should go? Or yeah, is the answer to that? Well, we, we did. We went to the Justice Department. Yeah, I, I think one of the messages to the American people is, you know, when you elect politicians for crisis times, you may like to hear stump speeches where they say red meat stump speeches where they say we're going to go kick everybody's ass. I would suggest you sit back and say, let me make sure I understand the temperament and judgment and also the, the world experience of the people I'm electing. Because what sounds good in a stump speech might not work out so well when someone's actually in a decision-making chair. Let, let me be clear. I have a lot of people when I give speeches say, you know, how do you assess the, the, the sort of um, national security experience of candidate X, Y, or Z? And my answer is, that's not really what I care about. What I care about is, do they seem, what's their temperament and judgment? So that when they get into a situation that's highly stressful, can I trust them? That's what I think about and the current occupant of the White House? Well, I, I mean, to, to be analytic, I look at the characteristics that I saw in leadership from people like, you know, Colin Powell or, or Condi Rice, and I, the characteristics I look for are things like... Whom you work for. Uh, yes, are things like temperament, judgment, um, 
character, charity, kindness, courtesy, patience. I'm trying to find a box to check. Uh, and I just, you know, I've been highly critical of the president on TV, but give me one of the characteristics that you want to teach a child, including about leadership, and explain how that characteristic applies to the president, especially temperament and judgment. I just, I, I don't see it. Well, one thing um, I see is the, the we're coming to the end of this program, but I want to thank you again and just remind listeners that you will be at the Miami Book Fair on Sunday, November 24th um, at 5 p.m., probably after another dolphin loss. <laughs> and <laughs> you'll probably have lots of people in dolphin shirts. But um, well, along with Malcolm Nance and... Uh, um, Josh and Josh Campbell and so but thank you very much it's been a pleasure talking with you and best of luck at the book fair um, well and thanks the book for the again, serious questions as Black Sight this, oh go ahead I'm sorry thanks I'm just saying thanks for the serious questions and 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 the open-minded questions as put you know sometimes you do these and people say how can you be so evil and you're like okay I know where this is going. <laughs> but no I, I've great. seen thanks. I've seen some of your presentations where basically you get that like ah you're a torturer um and yeah. I didn't think that would be very productive yeah that's right but um yeah no I, I've seen yeah and you handled them well to be honest I, I thank you I'm a I used to thank live you. right next to politics and pros so I always watch their interviews and um, and so, uh, but yeah, I can understand. There's a lot of passion on both sides on this. But yeah. no, I, I think yeah. you did a good job in the book in terms of getting um, getting this done. So, um, getting the hook from the producer. Thank you, everyone. This is Bennett Kelly with Cyberlaw Business Report. Join us for another Mary Book Fair interview next week. Thank you. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.